Well, good evening. I was going to start with the question of, do you want good news or bad news? But I think you already got the bad news. Microphone started working, so that was your bad news in that situation. You know, I have threatened from time to time for us to take a test when we get done with a lesson. Test time is here. But not the last one. It can't be that long of a test. It's a quarter of a sheet of paper here. So that I just want you to write real small. So I'm going to challenge you here in just a minute. But I will tell you this. First of all, it's an open book test. Everybody should have a book in front of them. Second of all, every question, only one Patrick's pat- quitting school already. That's terrible. So it should be, every question should have an answer that's pretty easy to get. And I'm going to give you one other thing as well. I'm even going to let you cheat just a little bit. If you're sitting by somebody smart, you can look off their paper. Now if you're sitting by somebody dumb, you might want to look the other way. I don't know. I'll let you determine who's smart and dumb and who wants to cheat off the move on this. But you won't need it until the end. But we're going to do a little, uh, we'll do a little test here in a minute. Now, we are in the book of Colossians. See, now everybody's all nervous. Everybody's all worked up. Got everybody scared before it even started, didn't I, Jimmy? But Jimmy ain't worried about it. He's already got his diploma. He's good to go. <laughs> Hey, Jimmy, you're lucky. You got the smart. You're sitting by a person you can cheat off of. It'll work, it'll work out good for you right there. All right. So tonight we are in the book of Colossians. And for our sake, more specifically, Colossians chapter 2 is where we'll be. Colossians is the 12th book of the New Testament. Uh, written by Paul, uh, as we talked about. A uh, handful of these written by Paul. And tonight in the second chapter of Colossians, we're going to be talking sort of roughly about what's on the screen there, being rooted in Jesus. And uh, it's a picture of a tree. I know that looks like that the tree is cut off at the top, but that's the way the picture was when I found it. So I, I dropped it down some, and it was just a big white strip across it. So I guess the tree outgrew the picture as it were. But what comes to mind? What do you think of? What does the word rooted in mean to you? A firm hold, okay. Really deep, strong. Jill? I said grounded. Grounded? Sustaining. I'm sorry. Sustaining. Okay, very good. All of those kinds of things work. And you know, when you plant a tree, when you first put out a tree, they have the, you know, a lot of times they'll have that ball of roots there, right? You, you plant that in, and you hope it'll take hold. And if you were to dig that tree up 10 years from then, will it still be in that ball, those roots? What will happen to those roots there? They're going to spread out. They're going to branch out because as the tree grows, it needs more support, right? You don't have to have as much support for a little sapling as you do for a mighty oak. This summer... Um, our plan, me and Mary and Will, is to go to Northern California where the redwood trees are. 
some of you all have been. I went, we and mom and dad just went years ago. And I've told Mary multiple times, I've shown her pictures, but I was like, none of this really matters. Like, it, it's, there's no description for what it really looks like. But all of you have seen large trees blown over from a big storm, right? From a tornado or even just a big windstorm. And you've seen those roots come up out of the ground, right? But it takes a lot to blow that tree over. My grandmother had all sorts of big trees in her yard. She fretted and worried constantly that they would fall over and land on her house. My grandmother overloved the ground. And it frustrated dad to no end. And finally dad realized like, this is just the way she is. She's just gonna kind of worry about this kind of stuff. But those trees, it takes a mighty big wind to knock those over because they are rooted in. Where do trees get their nutrients? those roots, right? Suck all that stuff in. They pull all that in. So if we are rooted in Jesus, what we're going to talk about here tonight, we're going to be planted firmly in it, right? What will it take to knock us off of that? Alright? Depends on how big your roots are, right? But hopefully it's going to take a really, really, really big storm to knock that over. But if we are rooted in Jesus, where are we going to get our nutrients? Where are we going to get our strength from? From the Word. That's stuff that we're going to draw on to get it. And so we're going to talk tonight about in chapter 2, there's two different sort of topics. And I've in a sense it's kind of broken it into two parts. The first part is not philosophy but Christ. And the second part is not legalism but Christ. And not to get wrapped up in a lot of sort of outside things like what Jimmy read just a moment ago, but our focus is on Christ. Now this was a problem for the people that Paul is writing to, and it can be a problem for us as well. So we are in Colossians chapter 2. I suspect that's the only place that you will need to be tonight. I don't think I'll pull up anything else uh, along the way, but we're going to be in Colossians. Colossians uh, chapter 2 here this evening. Tony, do you care to read verses 1 through 5 there, please? Connie, do you care to do verses 6 through 10? Just pick up where she left off. Who is the head of all principality and 
All right. So this first section, these first 10 verses, not philosophy, but Christ. And we'll get into that in just a second. Now, these are not your test questions. You don't need your paper, and I'll, I'll tell you about that here in a minute. But it might be a good idea to pay attention. Just think about that uh, as we go along here. Now, first question we have right here. From verse 1, what indicates here that Paul maybe, or maybe most likely, had not started the church in Colossae? This is in verse 1. So if you're going to go back into your reading what indicates there that Paul is maybe writing to a group of people that he just sort of knows of, but maybe doesn't really know? It said, it's for many, and he's talking about not only Colossae, but also in Laodicea. And he says, for many have not seen my face in the flesh. Now, that tells us a couple of things. First of all, we know that Paul is all over the place. But let's just say that perhaps Paul didn't start this church. Well, somebody else did, right? Well, I wonder who it would have been that would have started this church in this community of Colossae. I'm not necessarily looking for a name, but maybe a characteristic of the person. Very good. So I think we see the spread of Christianity in the early church seen right here. That perhaps Paul doesn't start this place. He's not the first person there to perhaps bring the gospel. But he taught somebody else who went to teach someone else. That's how things spread, right? That's how every bit, that's how news spread. That's how diseases spread, right? It goes from one to the other. And so this church here in Colossae had been established. And Paul said, I, a lot of you don't even know who I am. You've not seen me face to face on that. But in verse 2, what's his desire for those people? The people that he, we might as well say, doesn't even really know in Colossae and Laodicea. There you go. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together by love, and what else? And recognizing and understanding the knowledge and the mystery. So a lesson for us right here from the get how many of you could say that you know every Christian in the world? Is that possible? No. Not at all. Not, it's impossible for us. But can we still have the same desires for other Christians that Paul has in the first part here of this uh, chapter 2? Yeah, that we desire that they would be knowledgeable. That they would gain in understanding. As it says there, that they would be encouraged, that they would be knit together, as the Bible says there, in love. What's the purpose of that desire? Why did Paul want that for these people? And why do we want that for others today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, 
We've sort of answered this question thinking about why we should think that of others. But do we also hope that others would be saying the same about us? Do, do you feel comforted or strengthened by the fact that people in other congregations and other towns all around the country and around the world are hoping and encouraging the most for us as well? So it's it, like ben, uh, ben said there with sort of that knitting together, that sort of support that each side could be able to provide for one another. And we've talked about this a little bit with each of these four letters, uh, the uh, Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, that Paul would write these letters to these places that he had been to, or maybe he had not been to, but he was writing them in support and addressing concerns or questions that those people might would have had. Let's go a little further. What was Paul's, or what caused Paul to rejoice about the Christians at Colossae. Why was Paul excited about what he was hearing from them? Look specifically maybe in verse 5. Yes. Yeah. He says he was, they were, it was in good order. Which means that things are set up the way it should be. That, that things are operating well. You ever seen a business that was not in good order? It, it, not, not in good order, right? Ever worked for a place that wasn't necessarily in good order? Sometimes that's not too good uh, either. But if it's in good order, then things are going the way it is. And in verse 5, uh, it says, Rejoicing in the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So Paul is encouraged there by what he is seeing. Okay? Let's go back to verse 4 for just a second. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with what? What does it say there? All right, I got persuasive in the new King James, but I heard enticing. Is that the old King James? Entice or persuade. They mean the same thing. But what comes to mind with enticing or persuading? And he says, now this, now I say in verse four, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And what he's saying here is that you can be deceived about your knowledge of Christ. You can be deceived about your faith and your Christianity through 
these sort of persuasive words. It may not be an obvious thing, but you may get sort of worn down by them. Does that make sense? That may seem more appealing. But he says to them in verse 5, I'm happy, I'm behind you, that you are in good order, that you are steadfast. But can you still be persuaded? So what's our lesson tonight for us with with regards to this persuasion? Based on what Paul's talking about here. Right. For example, I knew a church. They did a 30-week study on why the word for from baptism for mission sin, why the word for didn't really mean for. Right. It meant something else. <laughs> and if it takes you 30 <laughs> weeks to convince somebody, then and that's probably what he's talking about. Right. You need to be able to know when to say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to hear it. We're going to see some more examples of that uh, as we go forward here uh, just a little bit. Um, let's go into that fourth question right there. According to the text, what two things are necessary for one to walk in Christ? Look in verse 7 in particular. What are some things that are necessary for one to walk in Christ? Okay. Very good. So if we look at verse 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, then it says what in verse 6? As you've received Christ Jesus, then do what? Walk Walk with him. Walk in him right there. But it doesn't just say walk in him or walk with him. I don't know what that means. But in verse 7, as you all answered there just a second, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. What does it mean to be established in the faith? Anything else on that? We think about established. It's sort of an old way, an old number, maybe. You know, let me give you an example. If you go to any college in the country, there will be a sign somewhere near the main building that says "established," and it's going to give you a year. Okay. And if you go to, you know, it, it might be in the early 1900s. Could be in the 1800s. If you go back to Harvard, it's established in 1636. But established means it's there, right? It exists. It is an entity that is there and has been there. So what would established in faith mean? I think it was kind of like built in faith. Maybe rooted. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But it's, it's not just a you know, kind of uh, floating this way or that way. You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, in the next 10 or 50 or 100 years, but the odds are pretty good based on the past. Harvard's probably still going to be there. University of Kentucky's probably still going to be there. Well, they should say the same thing about these people that Paul's talking about or about us, that whatever happens in the future, no matter what persuasive thought comes or what kind of convincing or enticing that you have, that you are going to be established Grounded, rooted in the faith. But 
it's going to take some work, right? That's something that can easily be taken away. Do you know anybody who used to be faithful? Not anymore? They probably didn't just say, I'm done with this, close the book. I would imagine it's a gradual process, right? It probably, over time, sort of persuasions from other sources pulled away. Thoughts? You have to make sure that you are built up and that you have enough knowledge. For, you have to really study and research and have all the answers prepared because the devil's going to throw all these sure. questions at you and stuff. And you need to make sure that you have an answer in your mind and not be double-minded, not be wishy-washy. Connie read a second ago in verse 8, but I want you to look at verse 8 right now. Tell me, what is the first word in verse 8? Beware. 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 How many of you have ever seen a beware sign somewhere out in the community? Yeah. All right? Anybody, you've probably all seen it, right? It could be something, you know, beware gas lines, right? If you're going to dig, you've got to be around that. Male lady, you ever seen any beware of dog signs? Yeah. What did you do when you went to this house and there's a beware of dog signs? You started looking. I'd say you can relate to that in your job as well. And that's the only thing you're aware of, right? When it says beware of dog, I don't know. Just throw the letters and go because I don't want to be in any kind of harm's way. But when we see the word beware, we start looking, right? The problem is when we don't see the word beware. What happens when we don't see the word beware? You need to be taken by surprise. You find yourselves in a whole lot of trouble. You see those advertisements that say call 811 before you dig? I think that's what it is. Because if you don't, what's going to happen? You don't, I mean, who knows what you're going to find? Then you're going to get in trouble if you find what you don't need to be finding. And it could potentially even harm you, put you in harm's way. So Paul says in verse 8, beware. So automatically, you got to be on the lookout. Beware, lest anyone do what? What's the verse, the next word there? Lest anyone do what? I like the word cheat right there. I know what the new king or the old king James. I like the word cheat right there because how many of you like to be cheated? It's, the, it's like the worst thing, right? Mary and I live with a child who loves nothing more than to cheat at a game. <laughs> if he's losing, right? The rules will change a little bit if he's losing. We don't like to be cheated, right? You know, if you beat me straight up, then that's fine. But being cheated is a little bit tough for us to take. Beware lest anyone cheat you, but they're going to cheat you through what? What's it say? Philosophy and empty deceit. And then we go further according to the tradition of men. So what Paul is saying right here is you're going to be convinced or you're going to be swayed through something that's not of Christ. And so you're going to be told or taught something in one direction and you're going to hear it and that's fine. You got to hear it, but you got to be aware of it. And you got to compare that back to what Christ taught. Here in a second, I gave you the paper and I said you're going to take a test here in a few minutes, but I gave you all sorts of caveats with the test. What I tell you is going to do with the test? You get to do what? The open book, right? You get to look and find the answers. What else? You said cheat. I heard you. <laughs> What else are you going to get to do? Do what? Give it to you and let you see if it's right. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's free break, Phil. I don't agree. All right, so you're going to have an opportunity to look that up. So these things that challenge us, 
these philosophies and these efforts at deceit, or even if they're not efforts at deceit, we have the ability to go back in and test the Bible to prove and reprove, right? Do we do that? Or do we sometimes just hear it and say, it sounds good. I'll roll with that. Well, people can really be convincing. Sure. <clears throat> and if they lock, they come up with excuses for themselves. And now, like you believe it too. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to, because, I mean, the boss is being, be aware of the persuasive words. Mm-hmm. But we use them too. Sure. Because we're trying to persuade people sure. to follow Christ. So we're using persuasive language as well. We're responsible for that. So if you're not going back to the Bible and back to what grounds you, then you would be just as guilty as someone else in your persuasive word. I think you're exactly right. I think that is... Uh, exactly right. And in in verse eight, it says, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So it seems to say that there's worldly principles and there are Christian principles that may not necessarily jive. I'm going to make sure that we're on the right side, that we're checking to, 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 to prove. And like Mary said, whatever I'm teaching to somebody else, when somebody says, wait a minute, where I got to be able to show, wait a minute, where it is as well. I mean, it's persuasive, but if I can prove where it is, I gotta be able to do it. We're supposed to constantly be checking ourselves. Sure. I mean, that's part of the thing is check yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thoughts? I think sometimes even in non-religious things, we're readily quick to just believe anything that's presented to us or told to us or, oh, I saw this there or he said this or they said that at work or whatever. We can kind of fall into that, fall into those sort of persuasive words. It's kind of like the easy way out. Sure, it it is. I guess that's right. Not bother to read and try to find out. I had a kid and he was frustrated at school the other day, and, he, and, and, and I had kind of gotten on him about a behavior, and I told him, I said, and right now your grade is not doing very good. And I looked it up, and I said, part of the reason is he was absent the day we take the test, and he never made up that test. And he just kind of was still mad at me, and he said, I'm just gonna, I'll just go home and cheat on it. Well, he said that out of sort of frustration, because that was the easy way out. Well, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll go and I can just, you know, just cheat on this test and Mr. Hopkins will shut up about it and I'll have it done. Well, 
he ended up kind of calming down. He took the test. He didn't make a real good grade on it, which he made a grade that seemed like somebody who didn't cheat on the test would have made. But the easy way out is sometimes that, well, just whatever. Just get, you know, I'll take that. That's fine. Without going in and sort of prepping and studying and trying to find what something means or says or is. Ben. I think the scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees were a good example of this. Uh, one group, I think there's the scribes and Sadducees, they did the tradition. This is what God told somebody, and we just passed down the word around orally. And they had no background, no, no logic or whatever, but because they were the leaders in charge, the people just took it all, okay, what must be the case? Same way with the Pharisees. They kept adding all this extra stuff to all these rules and everything else. Absolutely. We're going to see that here. If you want to go ahead and turn over to uh, verse 11 through 23, we're going to see that here uh, in just a moment. The first one was philosophy, sort of what people's thinking and teaching is. But the next one is going to be legalism. What do you think of when you hear the word legal? What is legal? Laws, court, okay. Rules. What do you think of when you hear illegal? Wrong. Not allowed. Wrong. Breaking those said laws, right? You're not, uh, you know, you, you, you're, you can't rob the bank. Well, it would be illegal to rob the bank, you know, whatever it might be. And so we think about, think about what legal means as we go through these next handful of verses, okay? L- what is legal? Uh, Jill, do you care to read verses 11 through 15? Melvina, this is what probably too small up here, but if you want to read verses 16 through 23. Sunday during Ben's class, Jameson and I got tickled. We was in Romans and somebody read something and the word circumcision was read like eight times in like a two verse. I was like, I don't know, this word is coming up a whole lot right here. Well, it comes up again 
in verses 11. The circumcision was a right practiced by the Jewish people. In verse 11, uh, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So this new circumcision goes into verse 12 is about baptism. Okay, And so the old sort of right that made someone a Jew sort of went away there. It was done without hands, not a surgical procedure. So in verse 12, how then is baptism a burial? So it's a burial in the sense that you are... Drop down in, right? We know what it means to bury someone, you know, that has passed away. It's that burial. But in the story of Jesus, Jesus is Jesus dies and is buried, right? But then what happens? He's raised from the dead. Now, if you were buried in baptism and then we just kept you pressed down there, what's going to happen to you? You're probably going to die. That's, that's, that would be illegal if you were buried like that. But whenever you're dumped into that water, then you come up, and that's a representation of what? That same thing. That same washing away of sins and that sort of coming back cleanse of everything. That's the example of Jesus as well. And not only that, but you bury it the old you. Yes. And all your old simple ways, all that's being buried there, you're coming up. Absolutely. And so that takes us into verse 13. So the second question up here, why have these people in verse 13 been dead? What was making them dead, as it were, in verse 13? They were dead in their sins. So those sins were what was killing them, right? And, And I say killing, not necessarily they were falling over dead, but how do our sins kill us? They, they ruin ourselves. They keep you from sort of achieving what you would like. So what then made them alive? It's kind of the same question. Thank you. What they were dead in their trespasses. What made them alive? Being buried with Christ. Being buried with Christ. And so that pulls them back up. They are alive. They have a, a, a new start, as it were. Now, this is not something that was taught in the old law. There's no Jesus in the old law. But in the old law, what did they do with their sins? What was the forgiveness of sins in the old law? Animal sacrifices. And they sacrificed animals to do what to their sins? To, To sort of roll them ahead, right? Sort of move those sins forward just a little bit. And so if those sins are moved forward, are they really gone? The other day, well, it's been a couple months ago now, we got some kind of notification that my student loan debts from when I went back and got my degree had not been... We had been charged for like a year. Is that right, Mary? Something like that. And it was part of like a COVID government forgiveness type of thing. And Mary didn't even realize we hadn't even been paying. Like she didn't realize it was not just being deducted, right? That's the right thing. I know. We didn't. But those kinds of things, those debts are still there, right? Those debts are still there. Like I still owe. EKU or the 
company that paid, he gave you a certain amount of money. Well, whenever those sins were rolled forward in the old law, you still owed, right? There, nothing was paid off. It was just <coughs> sort of pushed forward. Like robbery, you know, to, to just make Right, just push it forward just a little bit further. In verse uh, 14, it says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that were against us. And I wanted to look that up just a little bit because I think that wording is interesting. Does anybody have something different in their Bible in verse 14 than what it says, the handwriting of requirements? Handwriting of ordinance. Well, Ben's is way better than mine because handwriting of requirements is a little bit tricky, right? But when you read that, what it means is exactly what Ben just said. Christ had wiped out the handwriting of requirements. What are we talking about here? Well, the Greek word here for handwriting is used in common Greek for a document written in one's own hand as legal proof of indebtedness. You go borrow money from the bank, they'll give you the money, but what do you got to do to prove? You got to sign that form. Is this your name right here? Yes, it is. I mean, you owe money, what's interest, right? And so your handwriting, you recognize that I am indebted to this institution for whatever it might would be. Now, what did Christ do with that debt that's got our name written as big as John Hancock on it? Wiped it out, right? Wiped it, throw it away. Wiped it up. It's canceled, right? So what kind of debts did Christ cancel? What debts did Christ cancel for us? Say it again. There you go. The debt of our sins. What else? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else? In crucifixion, in, they, they hung, what, they, what, what's the little sign that they hung on the cross with Jesus? Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. Yeah, the, 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 the King of the Jews. But in a sense, that debt that we owed was nailed right up there too, right? Because Jesus was sort of the payment of that debt. Sometimes when businesses pay the last thing off, they'll burn the note, right? You ever heard that? They'll burn. What, what's the purpose of burning the note? It's gone. There's no more handwriting on it. Right? It doesn't say anything else on there anymore. And so that was all gone. Now, sometimes, even though that stuff was gone, and even though the things that in the past don't really matter, we still like to get a little judgmental about some of those things. Let's go to verse 16 because Paul here is talking to a group of people who are, in many cases, former Jews, but also Christianity or what becomes Christianity was populated pretty heavily by people that had been Jewish. And this is a big topic. Should I keep these old laws? Should I continue with new? So let's go into verse 16. In what regards were the Colossians not to be judged? Verse 16 there. Okay, so what does this verse mean? You're not to be judged on food and drink, festival, Sabbath, moon, whatever. 
kind of like Romans 14, this and Romans 14 match up through good. Yes. It says we've got no business, whatever. If you if you have to believe and be convinced of it in your heart that what you was doing is right, and don't worry about what anybody else is doing or try to pass what you believe on to him or maybe right. everybody here. And so what would happen is, is that you know, the old law said you can't eat certain things, you can't drink certain things, you can't do certain things at certain times. And you know, there, there were celebrations and this and that. And people who had no connection to the old law, who were becoming Christians, who were being taught and wanted to be part of Christ, the other person who used to have those connections, they can't be doing that. And it was confusing people like, what do you mean? I can't eat this? Like, what am I, where does that and they were tying the old law to this. What happened to the old law? Where did the old law go? It was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. It was hung on the cross. It was done for now. If you chose to follow that old law with regards to what you eat and drink, was there anything wrong with that? Could you follow the same dietary rules? That the, you could follow them today. There's nothing wrong with it. It becomes a problem when you do what? When you hold it as law, yeah. When you bind it to somebody else. Jimmy, you got to do this or else. Well, that's the old law. And so he was saying the same way that people could persuade you with sort of empty talk and deceit, they can also persuade you with this sort of legalism. This thing, you got to follow this, you got to follow that. And he said, that's not necessary. Last thing, last question up there. This is the last handful of verses that Melvina read there. What should be, or what is to be the Christian's attitude toward the basic Principles of the world. Let me rephrase. What do we not need to focus on and what do we do need to focus on? I'll give you two questions for the price of one. Reading says don't sweat the small stuff and everything is the small stuff. Yep. <laughs> yep. Don't sweat the small stuff. Don't get so focused on tradition. On rights, R-I-T-E-S, the way things are done. Don't be so focused on those things that you forget to do what you should do, right? Or that you don't even know why you're doing some things that you are. Can that happen to us even today? I hope it doesn't, but it can. I think it's nice that every Sunday before communion, somebody who's up there says something to kind of make you think a little bit, right? Because if we're not, we could... I could heave this out to you and you could take a drink and that'd be it, right? Now, that would be kind of rude. I don't know how many of y'all could catch it anyway. But if we were to do something like that, we're not really thinking about why we're doing it, right? When we, think of, when we do these acts, when we do these worships, we should be sort of focused in on it. Not just, well, that's what we've always done. You know, that, that's, what, that's what we always done. If the answer to why we take communion every Sunday is, well, that's what we've always done, that's not the right answer. There should be a legit reason for it. But these old, the old law, like you said, they sort of got so wrapped up in, you know, this is the tradition. This is what we do that you kind of forgot why you're even doing it. So what should we focus on? Christ. There you go. Following Christ. And, and that can be hard enough as it is. But that should be the sole focus and nothing else. All right. Here we go. Test time. All right. So on, we're going to go. We're, we're staying late tonight. This is what it's going to be. All right. So on your paper, I want you to number from one to five. And you're going to write down the answer to these questions. Again, you can talk to others. You're going to be like my students who sometimes talk and sometimes they won't talk. 
So number one, if number one is A, I'm going to use one and an A and two a B or whatever it might be. So I even got the verses in there for you to look just a little bit. Connie's the student who didn't come class prepared. I see how that works. 